Blog Talk Radio. edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host here, Amy Peikoff, and I did not have to look up the date today (laughs) because it's my birthday, so I know exactly what day it is, uh, including the year, unfortunately, right? But it beats the alternative, right? Growing a year older beats the alternative, which is not growing a year older. Welcome to everyone who's joining me over here at Blog Talk Radio. I see some people coming into the chat room as the show is getting started here. Welcome, everyone. Craig, Cobra Pilot is there. Just Gene, selfishness. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, If you go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, you'll see some program notes little hasty put together. There are not a whole ton of things there as well. What you can expect because it is my birthday is I'm going to be a little bit self-indulgent, but I did have a theme that I wanted to, uh, you know, put into a show today. So whereas if I didn't have anything in particular, I might've taken the day off and just had a birthday because I did have something in particular I want to talk about. I definitely wanted to do a show. So we'll have a hybrid birthday slash theme based show. The title is Clarity and Strength. And really the question is, what's the connection between the two? I had a friend uh, who posed the question, what gives you strength? And you're supposed to answer in just one concept. And these kind of questions are great because they just get you thinking. But for me, immediately the term that came to mind was clarity. And that was because of some experiences that I've had. And so I wanted to kind of relate that to some of the current horrible news about jihad attacks, uh, most recently in London and Paris. And now there's some attacks in Iran, although when there's attacks in Iran, I don't have as much sympathy as if they're in, for example, London or Paris. Uh, But we will talk about what would clarity give us if we were clear about the nature of the jihadist enemy, would that give us strength to actually do what needs to be done about the enemy? And that's something that I've been talking about for a long time. But I'm also going to talk about the connection between clarity and strength in another context. I've got some material from Atlas Shrugged that I've encountered recently that also illustrates this connection. So 
Um, that's the main thing that I have going on in the show, but there's some other things too. Again, go to don'tletitgo.com and you can see the program notes that I've got there. I've got a couple of things that are just fun to start with at the outset. One of them is my link to my Instagram. At the blog, I also have this little widget that inserts the most recent four Instagram photos there that you can see. But, you know, if you are on Instagram, go ahead and go follow me and stuff. I've got interesting things. But today I got the most awesome gift. Those of you who do follow my Instagram know that as I've been going out on walks, I've been taking pictures of flowers and mostly flowers, but clouds and sunsets and other things too. I just love that. And I had a friend on Facebook who showed me a wonderful picture of a bee. And I said, oh, a bee, I don't have a bee. So I did get a picture of a bee a little while ago, but it wasn't that good. I wasn't brave enough to get that close. And today I'm out walking and I wasn't even sure whether I was going to go for a walk before the show. Sometimes I just want to obsess and not walk before a show. I'll walk after. But I, I went out before, figured that I needed just to get out and get some air and stuff. And I found this one flower. It was very pretty. And I'm sitting there taking a close-up picture of this flower. And lo and behold, this bee just flies right on to the flower while I'm photographing it. Um, and so I got what I think is a decent shot, a really nice shot of the on this flower. The flower is pretty as well. That was the thing I didn't like about my bee shot last time as well. The flower wasn't very pretty. Here you've got a pretty flower, nice shot of the bee. You've got pollen. It was just, it, it, it was a photographic goal of mine and Mother Nature gave it to me on my birthday. So it was pretty cool. So check that out. Other things. Uh, I had a couple of people who shared with me one of the last little kafefe memes that was going around on Twitter. This actually was not just a meme out on the internet. It was a sign that somebody put, I guess, in front of a place of business, or I don't know if it was a church or whatever. But anyway, it's a you know a big sign with all of the kind of um, low tech letters, right? And it says, when I find myself in tweets of trouble. Mother Russia comes to me speaking words of wisdom, Kofefi. <laughs> and um, yeah, so what, what's the idea? What's the translation of Kofefe there? It's, uh, you know, let it be in effect. And that's similar to what I was settling on at the end of what the meaning of Kofefe must be. Let it be kumbaya, some sort of spiritual unity theme that's what we've got there. And it does, it does, it sounds Russian. So it just, you know, just kind of give you the idea of the connection between Trump and Putin. Although there was a funny little comment that's been going around in the news that I saw. I didn't put it in the program notes, but it was something like, you know, there's no way that Trump is colluding with Russia because he doesn't even collude with his own staff, which is just classic. Um, you know, that he's off doing his own thing. He, he, you know, he had that thing about when they were getting rid of Bannon and he's saying, you know, you shouldn't worry because I am my own strategist. So apparently this is true. He just goes off and does his thing. Uh, people over there in the chat room saying, yeah, they do have sound. I hope you do have sound on my birthday. That's all I need is blog talk to give me some major technical glitches on my birthday. Yep. Justine, I got a birthday bee, so make sure you go 
check it out because I think it was actually a really pretty picture. I was sitting there amazed. And I was brave enough to be right up there and just stay there this time. I mean, I guess I could have gotten stung or something. The bee actually flew off and onto the flower a couple times where I was taking a bunch of pictures and stuff. So I was brave besides. I was really clear about my goal to get the beautiful picture of the bee. And so I had the strength to remain until I got the picture that I wanted, or at least the picture that was possible given all the way that the bee was coming at the flower. You know, there's these perfect, you know, kind of iconic pictures of bees on flowers where the bee is standing up more. And on this one, if you see, if you look at the picture, the bee's more on the side. That is all that I was able to get. I have one that I got where the bee is flying onto the flower, but otherwise once the bee got there, it went immediately like on its side and you know, was trying to get at the little stamen pollen stems or whatever you call them. God, I need science again, but you know, from the side. And so I couldn't get the iconic picture, but it's, it's, it's a good picture. I was pretty happy with what I got. Um, Anyway, enjoy. Keep the confefe memes coming because confefe, confefe, confefe. I'm going to mispronounce this beautiful word of confefe that Trump gave us. But keep them coming because I think it's the spirit of making fun of our president is something that we want to retain. And especially with this horrible amount of bad news in the world, I've got a few links corresponding to stories about the jihadist threat and also the latest sort of realignments of alliances and who's whose enemy and stuff in the Middle East. And we'll get into those in a second. One thing I want to tell you guys, though, that if you do want to call in today and you want to talk about any of the things on the program notes, if you want to ask me any questions, I have one question that somebody sent me via messenger that I'm going to go ahead and try to take up. It has to do with critical thinking skills. That's one story that I've got on the program notes, but basically whatever you've got, call in 760-888-5817. I was even thinking of doing kind of a weird ask me anything because it's my birthday. I've never done one of those before. Um, We could see how that goes. That could be fun. So that's the number to call. But as I said, go over to the program notes if you want to check out. Uh, Thanks. Rob actually also sent me a story on the first link. He sent it via the Don't Let It Go on her page, but I already included it here from the New York Times. And the original headline from New York Times was that ISIS had claimed responsibility for attacks killing 12 in Tehran, but then if you go ahead and click on the link, they've already changed. No, they're changing their headlines throughout the day according to what criteria and priority. I'm not exactly sure. Sometimes you wonder if the first headline is the more honest one, you know, ISIS claiming responsibility. Now it's Iran assails Saudi Arabia after pair of deadly terrorist attacks. Assailants with assault rifles, it says, grenades and women's disguises burqa right and uh, yeah stunned iran on wednesday with audacious attacks on the parliament building and tomb of its revolutionary founder leaving at least 12 people dead and 42 wounded in the worst terrorist strike against the islamic republic in years 
The attackers were killed. Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps lashed out at Saudi Arabia and the United States, blaming them for the assault, even as, and New York Times has a link for this, responsibility for it was asserted by the Islamic State, the Sunni extremist groups that's taken credit for all of these terrorist attacks that's been going on the last few weeks. Ramadan, right? If the Islamic State's claim is true, that would be its first successful attack in Iran, which is predominantly Shiite Muslim and regarded by Sunni militants as a nation of heretics. Iranian-backed forces in Iraq and Syria are helping battle the Islamic State. Tensions in the Middle East were already high after a visit by President Trump, Saudi Arabia, and several Sunni allies led a regional effort on Monday to isolate Qatar, the once Persian Gulf country that maintains relations with Iran. This is starting to me to get very difficult to keep track of who is aligned with who and who's fighting whom and with whom should we be aligning ourselves. It's a very deadly soap opera type drama, it seems, that's going on. And we're going to have to watch it unfold and we are going to have to hope that our president, again, the president who doesn't even collude with his own staff, has a strategy that isn't going to endanger all of us even more than we already are from this jihadist enemy. And I'm, you know, I don't have any sense of it. I mean, one thing that I was thinking with this is you, if you've got ISIS and Iran fighting each other, that would be two really bad guys that could take each other out. And wouldn't that be wonderful? But then now Iran is blaming us and Saudi Arabia for it. And Iran already, you know, they're chanting death to America in the streets every Friday and everything else. And, you know, do we need them, you know, wanting to get us even more? We've got the arms deal. We sent them pallets of cash. I was tweeting all that out there. Um, it's very, very, very messy. It's very messy. And my, you know, biggest overall, you know, kind of a bit of advice that I would ever give is that if we can at all avoid it, you wouldn't make an alliance with any of Muslim regimes in the Middle East, any of them. I don't care, Sunni, Shia, whatever. You know, one is supposedly our ally this week and then next week a different one. I mean, probably not weeks, but years. And how in the world can we safely make an alliance or send arms or do anything with any of these people except for Israel? Yeah, make an alliance with Israel. Maybe make an alliance with the Kurds. The Kurds are better. But I feel like we're just playing with fire with any of this and we don't know how it's going to go down. It seems that you know, Trump going over there and, and encouraging Saudi Arabia in a certain way, letting them know that we're going to make good on some of these arms deals. From what I understand, the arms deals that Trump was sort of taking credit for, you know, that he's helping Saudi Arabia to get good deals on $110 billion worth of arms and all that. This was a fake news item, and I've got a link to that story, that all of this First of all, it's just letters of intent. I guess some things have to be approved still, so it doesn't exist. But then all of the process for these was started by Obama. 
So it's not like he can really take credit. What he can take credit for, though, is going over there and, um, you know, giving them some sort of kind of moral reassurance, right? You know, this this idea that you're sort of giving them moral support and uh, sanction, right, Saudi Arabia in, in the region, and then making them feel like they're stronger and that they are justified and motivated to isolate Qatar. What happens when you isolate Qatar, though? Now you've got Turkey moving in there, and what's going to be the outcome of that? I don't know if anybody can predict. So I can't predict what's going to happen. If anybody thinks that they can predict what's going to happen in the Middle East with this latest isolation of Qatar and the realignment and now the attack by ISIS on Iran and Iran blaming it on Saudi Arabia and United States, if you have any knowledgeable prediction to share about what the outcome of this is going to be, whether it is actually going to further our interest in being free of the jihadist threat. I would love to hear that. Again, number is 760-888-5817. I do have somebody who's called in who is on hold, so I'm going to go ahead and take that call. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Oh, can you turn down your audio in the background because I'm hearing delay. Hello? Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Oh, can you turn down your audio? I'm hearing a lot of delay. Hello? Are you talking? Are you talking to me? I am. I am talking to you. But can you go ahead and turn the audio on your computer off so I can hear you? Okay. That should do it. Okay. okay. Who's this? Uh, actually, I called in. It looked like there were so many people that were getting in line there. I wanted to uh, discuss your. Uh, claim that colleges are failing to teach uh, critical information, things like that, to uh, college students uh, by reference to Ayn Rand and other information that's available. They are not would, um, would Okay, would you like to call back later in the show when I'm talking about that particular topic then? Because I've got some that's more fine. on this topic yes. that I want to go for. Yeah, yeah, so that would be great. About, who, um, about when? Um, I, you know, I, I don't know exactly. I, I'm not always great okay. at predicting what? certain time segments on this show, but yeah, definitely minutes. do. What did you say? 30 minutes. Maybe 30 minutes or so. That, that sounds reasonable. That sounds good. Um, and, and who is this? Is this Tom? This, this is Tom. Yes, ma'am. Okay, great. Yeah. I recognize your voice from calling earlier. Okay, okay great. I'll, then we'll, I'll maybe we'll talk later. Sounds good. Take care. Okay, thank you. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay, so if you've got something on this, then we can go ahead. Now let's see here. What do we have? Collectivism is messy, Craig says in the chat room. Rob says, looks like Iran and Saudi Arabia have a history of accusing each other of terrorist attacks. Yeah, I mean, it's good that the New York Times immediately put right in there the link to ISIS claiming the responsibility for it I don't know yeah I mean I guess really that is the headline right Iran accusing Saudi Arabia that's the thing maybe that's more important right now than whether ISIS claim responsibility but you definitely want to include as they did right away the link to that 
Rob was asking if that was James. No, it's not James. Um, James did promise that he would call in. I don't know if he's got any prediction on this foreign policy stuff. Usually he wants to talk about the law. And actually what I should have done, I've got another birthday gift that I got, but I skipped over it. So I'm actually willing to take that, that up at any point in time, James, if you want to talk about that, which is the Supreme Court case, the now upcoming Supreme Court case about the privacy of GPS location data from our cell phones. I'm pretty excited about that. And why is that a birthday present to me? Because maybe participate in an amicus brief on it and get my theory of the third party doctrine before the court. So this is people who followed my show for a long time and heard me talk about that. know that that would be awesome. Rob says, if they haven't gone to war yet, I don't see it happening. Hmm. I don't know. You know, human beings always have free will. And you might say that in a way, I I don't know that they have a freer will, but when they are deluding themselves about the fact that maybe they're engaged in some sort of holy war, they might be more likely to eventually go to war. You could say that the leadership in both those countries aren't really as deluded about whether there's an afterlife and all of the rewards that the Quran promises and everything. But, you know, they, they seem to definitely have the potential to think that they're on a mission. Certainly ISIS, you know, could, could ISIS itself succeed in stirring up a war between these two? ISIS is a new player in the mix there. Uh, Christopher in the chat room is reminding me that I need to discuss James Valiant's book, uh, James Valiant's book, Creating Christ, soon. Yes, definitely need to. James says, no predictions, but he's cheering this attack akin to Nazis and commies at each other. Yes, and that's definitely the, the thought that I had, which is, yeah, if you could have ISIS and Iran just destroy each other, go out at each other and be preoccupied with each other. That would be wonderful. But again, New York Times, maybe I should just give them credit for switching the headline. If Iran takes this immediately as a reason to blame Saudi Arabia and by extension the United States because we've been making nice with Saudi Arabia, then it might not turn into that. And in fact, they might just use that as a pretext to do something to us or, or our allies over there. So I don't have a prediction. Again, if somebody knowledgeable does I'm more than willing to hear it we're going to keep watching it as things unfold we've got a little bit more in terms of discussion here 760-888-5817 is the number to call if if you want to do that um, yeah so as I say the attack in Tehran unfolded over several hours starting at 10 30 a.m. Men's are, men who were armed with assault rifles and suicide vests, some of them dressed as women, descended on the parliament building, killing at least one security guard, wounding and kidnapping other people. Standoff lasted about four hours. The building had been undergoing renovations intended to enhance security, particularly at the entrance, but they hadn't been completed yet. One attacker left the parliament an hour into the siege, then ran around shooting on Tehran's streets before returning to the building, where at least one of the assailants blew himself up on the fourth floor as others continued firing from the windows. So, yeah, you could, you know, again, we could hope that this could just be Iran 
and Saudi Arabia, I mean, excuse me, Iran and ISIS going after each other and obliterating each other. So I just got a distracting mail sound. I had to turn that off. Okay, there we go. M-A-I-L. Okay. So that's the first thing. That's the first bit of news of what's going on over in the Middle East. Again, if you go to the blog, don'tletitgo.com, you can follow all the program notes that I'm looking at here. Second thing that we've got besides the attack in Iran, there was uh, an attack in Paris, but of course the larger attack was an on a, you know, attack on a police officer in Paris, but the larger news is the London Bridge attack. And, it, you know, the, the nature of this attack was just so horrific and so brutal. You'd say, what was it, six people who were, were killed, but there were many more who were just brutally injured, and it was such a, a horrific attack in, in nature. Um, you know, talk about terrorism. The latest news is that they've got the third attacker named a Moroccan-born Italian was flagged on the terrorism database after he was stopped. So imagine, as far as I know, at least two of the three were on the radar of officials in England or London. And the question is, why were these people even out on the streets? One of them I had read earlier was actually... Uh, in a video, some sort of a video announcing his, you know, jihadist interests and intents. This guy, his name Yusuf Zagba, I don't know how to pronounce these names, these scumbags. He was flagged on an international terrorism database after he was stopped while trying to travel to Syria. And he told officials, quote, I am going to be a terrorist. At least it's been claimed that he said that. He moved from his father's home country of Morocco to Italy with his Italian mother in 2016. He tried to travel from Bologna Airport to Syria via Istanbul in order to join the Islamic State. His mother said he'd been radicalized by material on the Internet. Thanks, Twitter and all you Facebook people and stuff for letting that stuff be there, right? Uh, And that the other two attackers, the other two scumbags whose name I won't bother to pronounce, uh, seven people they killed, uh, they, that they were his friends. Counterterrorism police were searching apartments in and around Bologna. Raids took place at the homes of friends and relatives of the attacker, including the house of one of his ex-girlfriends who is from Libya and, li- and lives near Bologna. In March 2016, when the scumbag first tried to get to Syria, he was challenged by officials after he became agitated As he approached the check-in desk at Bologna Airport, he told them, quote, I'm going to be a terrorist, according to reports in the Italian press citing security sources. His passport and phone were impounded. Propaganda videos and religious sermons found on the phone appeared to confirm his intent to join ISIS. You know, these are defaults by our you know, leaders, our political leaders, our security forces, that these people who have been on the radar, how many people are out there right now with a background similar to at least these two, the one guy who, he's out there on a video declaring, in effect, he's a jihadist. I forget exactly what the scumbag said, but 
here's the other one. I'm going to be a terrorist. And they don't lock him up or send him away or, or whatever. He needs to be locked up. Now he's dead. I understand. But why, you know, why are we not dealing with this properly? And part of it, of course, is political correctness. Part of it is a lack of clarity about what you owe someone who makes these sort of declarations. You know, this idea, oh, well, technically, according to law right now, we don't have XYZ little box checked on, you know, permission to lock this person up. We're at war. We are at war. Now, um, you could say a lot of times these jihadists, they shouldn't actually mean so much in terms of danger to us on the global stage, but we have mishandled this. And there are these people who are intent on killing us. They're motivated by religion. So they are not cowed by danger to their persons. In fact, they would love to die as they are taking a whole bunch of us with them because they think they're going to receive all sorts of glory in the afterlife, the nature of which is described in great detail in the Quran. It sounds like a really lame afterlife as far as I'm concerned, but they find it uh, you know, awesome uh, and appealing and, and attractive. They want all those virgins and they want you know, the rivers with the milk and honey and whatever it else it is that they're being promised there. Um, these people are serious. They mean business, and we have not taken it seriously. Uh, we've gone ahead and through political correctness or the idea that, you know, innocent until proven guilty, regardless of declarations of intent like that, we have allowed this danger to continue. Rob Aviera says he can't help but be reminded by Hitchcock's early films, many of which dealt with urban terrorism in London. Very, very horrific. Uh, Rob says that from what, what I read, at least some London bar patrons were defending themselves by throwing chairs at the attackers. Yeah, good for them. And then there were some, I mean, I think there was one guy who just single-handedly without weapons at all was just fighting some of these people off. James talking earlier about the Iranian attack, he says there were these were Iranian politicians, so it's hard to cry about them. Yeah, definitely it is. It's not like I'm going to be so upset. The thing that I just don't know is, you know, to what extent is our intervention in the Middle East stirring up this hornet's nest? Haha, connect back to my bee, right? Um, stirring it up and making it worse than it would be. Rob is giving film recommendations there in the chat room. The Man Who Knew Too Much, early Hitchcock film, which I have not seen, but you guys can all check it out. Tim says that the birds is a good metaphor for the Muslim invasion. Okay, we'll have to go back. and I don't, if it's a metaphor for Muslim invasion, I don't know if I want to watch it. Maybe you're going to say I should, and I'll, maybe I'll have to do that. But uh, real life is providing enough horror for me, enough terror, enough weirdness for me to want to escape from in different ways, like just taking pictures of flowers and bees and other awesome, pleasant things. Not, but maybe, maybe I'll watch. You tell me why I need to watch. Am I going to, spooky, yes. Am I going to have this sense of gloom and doom 
after I watch this movie, because I get that after watching the news sometimes or reading the news. I don't really watch the news. Watching would be even worse. I have to take it in by print. And that's okay. Um, so what's next in the parade of horrible? So they have the, the third attacker. They've named him. They've identified him as somebody that should never have been loose because he potentially has declared his intent to be a terrorist, I guess, defiantly in some way. I mean, he knew he was being screened by authorities. If somebody is willing to make a declaration like that when being screened by authorities, you know, it's one thing you're out there on a video and you're not directly confronting an authority. This guy's directly confronting authority and he has the, the gall to say that. Anyway, I don't know. Um, one good thing that Trump did, I guess he's chastised the mayor of London a bit, but a lot of good that does at this point, you know, after all of this is going on. Um, okay, here. Sorry, I'm getting all kinds of messages and notifications, birthday style and stuff, uh, different places, phone and everything. So sometimes I'm going to be a little bit distracted during the show. I apologize. Uh, okay, so what's next? So next in terms of the confusing for me, perplexing, I can't predict what's going to happen next. Realignment in the Middle East. We've got this Al Jazeera article that a friend shared. Thank you. Turkish parliament approves troop deployment in Qatar. So remember, right, everybody the other day isolated Qatar. Uh, there is already a ban in terms of flights to and from Qatar from various countries there in the Middle East. They're all isolating Qatar. And then the question is the ban also in flying in certain airspace because of the border that's shared with Saudi Arabia. This is a big mess. And as it is, we have a base in Qatar. So that complicates things. And yet we seem to have encouraged this to happen. So again, to me, confusing, a mess. I don't know what's going to come of it. What has happened now is the Turkish parliament has approved legislation allowing Turkish troops to be deployed in Qatar. So if you think Qatar's the bad guys, and then you want to isolate them, and you think, okay, well, now Trump has succeeded in doing this, and somehow, I mean, maybe maybe Trump or whoever's his, you know, sort of clairvoyant or, um, you know, sort of puppeteer, if you know who, whoever's guiding Trump in this, if if that person is wise and maybe he knows that this is the right thing to do, that you want to isolate Qatar, that you want to put pressure on them, okay, great. But now Turkey's coming in, and Turkey, as we know, recently has voted to move in a more, some people would say, Islamist direction. Uh, the idea of them coming in and then shoring this up just means that you have somebody else to create instability. You're going to create some more instability there in the Middle East. Um, so it says, Turkey is a key ally of Qatar and is setting up a military base in the country, which also hosts the largest U.S. air base in the Middle East. So what is going to come of this? Saudi Arabia, Egypt, United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain severed relations with Qatar and closed their airspace to commercial flights on Monday accusing it with financing extremist groups. Qatar vehemently denies the accusations, 
So it's now the worst split between powerful Arab states in decades. Is there going to be more instability over there? Are there going to be people who are going to come in on the side of Qatar other than Turkey such that we're going to feel like maybe we've made things worse for ourselves? All of this, as far as I can tell, remains to be seen. And again, I don't have a prediction about it. I'm going to go over to my no, over over my switchboard, I don't have anybody who is bold enough to make a prediction about exactly what's going to happen. The, the, the problem for me, right, you say, okay, if we have been involved in the Middle East and then suddenly we just pull out, we create this vacuum and all sorts of horrible things are going to happen. And as we've seen, Russia has been heavily involved in the Middle East. So if we decided, okay, well, we weren't going to make good on the deals that Obama started, you know, that he initiated with Saudi Arabia, these deals to sell them weapons and engage them as an ally against the really, really bad guys. Um, You'd say, well, if we didn't do that, then Russia just steps in and ends up making things very dangerous for some of our allies in Europe and other places, right? So that it's not responsible for us if we, you know, want to help protect our allies, which we do, to just pull out and not, you know, sort of do what we can to stabilize the matters or get rid of, I guess, the bad guys in the moment. So maybe we do have to be involved. But the thing I don't like is that we have to somehow thereby make an alliance with Muslims. And I, you know, I've read the Quran and I've looked at a lot of the material put out there by Robert Spencer much of, I mean, it, it's good stuff. You know, Robert, I, I think he's a really good guy. There's some people who, I don't know, they they think that he's like anti-Muslim per se and everything else, but I think he's just got a really good handle on Islam and Islam as the motivation for jihad, precisely what's in Islamic doctrine that motivates jihad. This is, you know, he's made it his life study. And I've gone in there, read the Quran, read his notes, you know, about the Quran. He's got a whole set of, you know, sort of annotations and stuff that he's got online and also in book form and everything else. You can read his works. Uh, If you read the Quran, it says, kill the infidels wherever you find them. It talks about Jews being the descendants of apes and pigs and that how it is your moral duty to engage in jihad. And it promises you all sorts of wonderful, wonderful things in the afterlife if you join in the jihad, uh, it talks about, you know, all the things about the subjugation of women and it condones the beating of women. The Quran has got all sorts of horrible stuff in it. And if you think, OK, you, oh, yeah, we're going to make an alliance with Saudi Arabia and that we can actually count on them and trust them to do what they say. I, I just don't think so. So we're on the one hand, I say, OK. Yeah, it's a vacuum if we pull out and because we've been involved there before, if we just suddenly and irresponsibly pull out of the Middle East and don't get involved, then we're leaving this vacuum because Russia is more than happy to make alliances with the jihad, the the less jihad jihadist of the moment or whatever um, in order to gain power. They're happy to do that. And so that if we don't do it, then somehow... It's bad, but at the same time, I, I, I can't see 
that long-term you can ever have anything to gain by sending arms to or making alliances with you know, devout Muslims of any kind. And in Saudi Arabia, they are some of the most devout Muslims. Remember, 28 pages isolated from the 9-11 report, they were responsible. The Wahhabi doctrine that's there uh, is one that has motivated terrorists all over. They're one of the main exporters of extreme Muslim ideology and funders of, of the proliferation of extreme funded, you know, Muslim ideology. So... I'm I'm really torn about this, uh, you know. But what's going to happen? What, I don't know. If you have a prediction, like I said, let me know. It does seem like it is very unstable that we're going to basically, you know, be watching the news all the time to see how this plays out. We're going to have to be worried for allies that are closer over there. I don't know that, it, you know, it's actually going to any sort of hostilities are going to reach our shores again. There seems to be a fairly good handle on preventing 9-11 scale attacks here, but you just don't know. Uh, People are talking about Hitchcock there over in the chat room. Christopher says, I wish we'd clean up our foreign policy enough to stop allying ourselves with enemies in the quote, you know, in the name of quote, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yes. Not to mention foreign aid to countries that violate individual rights. Yes, it would be good to you know, definitely minimize foreign aid to anybody that condones violations of individual rights. The idea of aiding Saudi Arabia, which has oppressed women horribly, I don't like it. And again, can you really even trust them to carry through on the things that we're expecting. I mean, right now, I guess, Trump wanted them to put pressure on Qatar, and and sure enough, they have. They've isolated, and they've gotten other people to follow them. So if that's the right thing to do, then it seems for this moment that Saudi Arabia is playing along. But what is that going to end up looking like in in the long term? We don't know. So I've, I've said I know. I've said I don't know enough now. Maybe we need to go on to a different Different bit of story here. Uh, I've got the link to the 110 billion arms deal to Saudi Arabia's fake news. I'm sorry, I've actually forgotten who posted it on Facebook. And I remember I reacted to it and said, haha, it could have been Mark Natickman. Perhaps it was. He he posts a lot of good stuff. It might have been him. Last month, President Trump visited Saudi Arabia and the administration announced that he had concluded a $110 billion arms deal. Only problem? and this is according to the Brookings Institution, EDU, Brookings.edu, only problem is that there is no deal. It's fake news. The author of this piece, Bruce Riddell, says, I've spoken to contacts in the defense business and on the Hill, and all of them say the same thing. There is no $110 billion deal. Instead, there are a bunch of letters of interest or intent, but not contracts. Many are offers that the defense industry thinks the Saudis will be interested in Someday. I can't believe our defense industry is making offers to the Saudis. I mean, that's another thing, right? It's one thing if Donald Trump, our president, is doing this. But I will also be happy to step in and judge, you know, anyone in the private defense industry or semi-private, right? Semi-private defense industry who thinks that it's good to deal with the Saudis, right? This is not just 
are politicians. This is people in industry who say, oh, well, we'll make a lot of money. I don't care that we're arming the people who are exporting horrible ideology that's you know anti-Western civilization or these people who are subjugating women or these people who are behind 9-11 and potentially behind all sorts of other terrorist attacks as well. But anyway, offers from the defense industry. So he says, so far, nothing has been notified to the Senate for review. The Defense Security Cooperation Agency, which is the arms sales wing of the Pentagon, calls them, quote, intended sales. None of the deals identified so far are new. All began in the Obama administration. So imagine, you know, here's Trump and he's got the whole stupid orb photo op stuff and he's announcing that he's made these great deals and everything else. There's no deal. And whatever there is, these letters of intent, he's not responsible for it. It's Obama. It is fake news. This story should be shared quite a bit because Trump loves to go out there and talk about fake news, this and fake news, that. And he here is responsible for fake news. It could be that he just projects because he knows that that's something that he intends to do. He intends to, you know, spread his propaganda via his Twitter feed. And he, and he intends to distract us all from spreading the propaganda via Kefefe. Maybe the whole Kefefe thing was not even, you know, I'm envisioning him falling asleep while he's tweeting or whatever. And maybe he's puts this out there intentionally to distract everybody from the fact that he's made this fake news. So kudos um, Riddell for writing this article and putting it out there. People should go ahead and share it. Freedom Breeze is over here in the chat room and says, at some point, don't American allies have to take a lot more serious responsibility for their own citizens? Maybe these countries would take America more seriously if we declared war on jihad. I think those are two different points, two different two different points there. Uh, she says she's enjoying her cafe as well. Yeah, it, it is. That's the easiest, right, is that we're having coffee and Scott Adams, he has this little YouTube video series, Coffee with Scott Adams. And so as soon as Cafefe came out, they said, you have to have a Cafefe with Scott Adams. And he took them up on it and did a, you know, impromptu episode of his YouTube video in the middle of the night and whatever. Um, yeah, I've got, I've got a cup of decaf Cafefe. I figure I don't need to be caffeinated today as much. I had some caffeine earlier, so I've got a little little cup going here myself. I've got a link in the program notes to the interview with Robert Spencer. You know, again, a a few pieces here. First, things that we've talked about in the past, what is the proper stance with respect to American self-defense in relation to the jihadist enemy? What we need to do is we need to, first of all, of course, figure out who the enemy is, be clear about who the enemy is, and one of the things that I was doing as the London attack was unfolding and there were these live videos on Facebook, I don't know how much good any of this does, but a lot of people seem to react to the comments that I made. So I was actually going in there and making comments while this live Facebook live video by a news source on, on Facebook, you know, a British news source while that video was being played and all these people were in there commenting, I was in there commenting as well And the sort of stuff that I like to put in there is say, look, we understand that not all Muslims pose a threat. 
not all Muslims are going to be jihadists, are going to engage in terrorist attacks, etc. The problem is, is that there is within Islam a doctrine that justifies this. And it's not some obscure interpretation of the Quran or any of the other materials, you know, with the Hadith and everything else. Um, it's not some obscure interpretation. It is an interpretation that is taken seriously by a whole ton of people. You know, the people go in there and say, oh, well, yeah, Christianity is so dangerous and stuff too. And Christianity is a problem, but right now you have a substantial minority of Muslims who take Islam seriously to the extent that they are motivated by the doctrine of jihad within Islam and they pose a real threat to us. So, you know, you go on these threads and say, no, of course it's not all Muslims. Of course I'm not necessarily in favor of banning all Muslims from coming into our country or anything like this, but there is you know, enough of a substantial minority of Muslims who take the jihad doctrine seriously that you cannot deny the connection between Islam, a religion, yes, it's a religion, that is motivating these scumbags. And to the extent that people evade this, that they decide that they don't want clarity about this connection, then they're going to treat Muslims like everybody else. And they're going to go through and say, oh, well, we have to give them due process. Even if a scumbag is at a airline, you know, ticket counter or checking counter, and he says, I'm going to become a terrorist. Well, due process, you know, um, we, we haven't seen him. I mean, perhaps, you know, again, I don't know the particular law in Italy, even sometimes I don't know the particular law in my own state. I'm an academic lawyer. Uh, you know, usually what happens is you can't just have some sort of a declared intention. You have to have taken an overt act. But I would say the guy's taken an overt act. He's trying to get on an airplane. He's trying to go to Syria. Why wasn't this guy locked up? They said it was 2016. That's a year ago. Lock them up for a good long time until we get this enemy dealt with. Um, you know, again, maybe you think you can set up something in the Middle East where they're just going to kill each other and you can stand back and watch it happen. If you can do that, set that up and then get yourself out of there, that would be wonderful. But we have to realize that it, it is a real threat, that since that there are people here, we need to be comfortable with all the anti-PC stuff like profiling and, and everything else, because this religion, there is a substantial minority of people who adhere to it who are a risk. Um, we do want to, of course, enforce individual rights for everyone as much as possible, but you need to take into account we are at war, that these attacks are going to continue so far as we do this catch and release thing with people who have evinced adequate terrorist intent. And that's what at least two of these scumbags from London did. Uh, so it, it's inexcusable. And the London's got a Muslim mayor right now, which in and of itself worries me. I, you know, again, you, you have to decide, given that there is this connection between Islam and jihad, you have to decide to what extent would you make, you know, modifications with respect to civil rights. Do you want to have Muslims in positions of power like mayor in a major 
Western city. Maybe you do, maybe you want to do a whole pile of background checks before you would allow such a thing. I myself would never vote for one. I can tell you that. Call me racist, but Islam's not a race. It's an ideology. I wouldn't vote for one. Whereas I would vote for a Ted Cruz. And why? It's because you don't have a substantial majority of Christians right now who want to kill me in the name of their religion. So, oh, People are talking in the chat room. Don't forget Ocon. Ocon starts on Saturday. There's a lot of you who are going to be at Ocon. I'm actually not going to be at Ocon this year. So I hope those of you who are going have a good time. I intend to be there for at least uh, some of the live stream. There's a really cool offer that they have for a live stream so that if you can't be there in person, you can watch whichever, not whichever lectures appeal to you, but a, there's a number of lectures that they're offering live stream for. And there's some really good stuff on the agenda. So do check that out. Maybe I'll go ahead and add a link to the, the Ocon live stream into the program notes. Okay, yeah, so so the, the one thing is to be clear, right? So if you're clear about the nature of this enemy, if you're really clear that there is a connection between Islam and jihad, right, that, that jihad is not some perversion. And this is one of the things that I did tweet about is that even Theresa May, who's supposed to be one of the better politicians, said that jihad is a perversion that these guys were acting on a perversion of islam and it is it's not a perversion it is a fairly accepted interpretation now it's rejected by any person who loves their life so there are a lot of people who want to have their islam and eat it too i don't even like to use that phrase with respect to Islam, right? It's like, you know, have your cake and eat it too. I wouldn't even want to put Islam in that idiom because Islam is so abhorrent to me. Um, yeah, that's, that's pretty amazing that you, you have that. Like, no, I don't want to put that in there. Um, but people want to have it both ways. They want to say that they're Muslim and then yet they don't want to embrace some of the horrible doctrines that are in the religion. And People have been doing that with Christianity for a long time, and people have been doing it successfully. But there, again, there's the substantial minority who believes this. The interpretation is a fairly, you know, sort of well-documented interpretation. It's not this obscure fringe perversion. You've got all of ISIS, all of the Islamic State acting on this. Maybe we've emboldened and helped create the Islamic State. Maybe Russia has, I mean, you know, how did we allow this to come about? Maybe we have made it such that the substantial minority has become more substantial. It exists. We need to acknowledge it. And the reality is right now we need to profile and do some things that a lot of people are uncomfortable with to, to deal with the enemy. Um, then maybe that'll give us the strength to do what's necessary. But right now, as I said, just playing off of earlier, part of the strength to do what ne what's necessary is the strength to engage the brain power to actually figure out how to sort out that mess over there because it is a mess. It, as I said, it's more confusing to me than any of the weirdest, most tangled soap operas that I used to try to watch sometimes when I was a kid. You try to say, you know, this one's sleeping with whom and who's doing what with that and everything else. And this one, you know, is cheating on that one. This one's going to uh, 
undermine the business of the other one and that one is lying to this one about that and trying to make a rift between the brother and sister. I mean, and this is what's going on in the Middle East right now. So we need the strength to figure it out. And then once we figure it out, act upon it. Now, it happens to be that one point that I was thinking about this issue of clarity, which for me actually applied more on a personal level, seems to also now apply here. Um, you could think about clarity and strength in your own life. And that's where I think about it. I think about if you get really clear about how certain things in your life are just causing you pain, or if you get really clear about how certain things in you know, in your life or things that you like to do or qualities in people, that those things bring you joy, either of those from the positive or negative. If you get really clear about it, that can give you the strength to act upon it. And I'm going to pull out Atlas Shrugged in, in a minute to give you an example of it. But, you know, I'm not going to you know, kind of bore you with my own life, but I've found this. Now, it can be in your career, it can be in your personal life, it can be with respect to pursuing certain avocations, whatever it is. But if you have clarity about how something either brings you joy or causes you pain, that can give you the resolve to do the things that you need to do to either get away from the things that are causing you pain or to move towards the things that are going to bring you joy. I found that personally. So this is why, you know, my friend says, Think of the one thing that gives you strength. I say clarity, clarity about these things. You have to be clear. But I'm going to add, and, and this applies in the foreign policy context, clarity doesn't have to be certainty. And I go back again. I've listened to a lot of uh, good stuff from Evan Pagan. Evan Pagan, and he, he's not necessarily an original thinker on this. Evan Pagan is just a good teacher of stuff that he's gathered from everybody else in, in a lot of ways too. But he had said, and this is, you know, I give him a hat tip, right? Clarity isn't certainty. What he would say is, what, what do you need? You need clarity about what in all probability is the next appropriate step for you to take, right? So you don't have to be clear. We don't necessarily need to be clear in the Middle East, 100% clear or certain about how everything's going to fall out. But we do need to make as good a study. And this isn't me. These are the experts because this has gotten beyond. I mean, I can't, I don't feel like I can sit, just sit here in armchair pontificate about what exactly should happen next in the Middle East. I can't do it. Somebody who's a military expert could, somebody who's been studying this. And I think that there's going to be a lot of reasonable disagreement about what are, what's the next correct step. But we have to have the strength to figure it out. We need to try to figure out with respect to the appropriate understanding of the connection between Islam and Jihad. So at least to my mind, it doesn't seem like we are avoiding alliances with somebody like Saudi Arabia as much as we should. To me, I would try to avoid it like the plague first and say, why don't we do more things with Israel? Why don't we do more things with the Kurds? Why do we have to go over there and make pretty speeches with the Saudis and have the stupid orb, uh, you know, celebrating in the anti-extremism center, which is disgusting. So I, you know, for me, you'd say, okay, you've got to apply your principles. It could be that uh, even applying our principles within the context of the mess that exists now would require us to get involved with 
Saudi Arabia and some other people to some extent. Are we applying those principles? I'm pretty sure because it's Trump that we're not applying principles of any kind. He's not even colluding with his advisors. He doesn't have principles. He's the guy on Inauguration Day who never talked about individual rights in his address. So, um, but, you know, you go in there, you apply your principles, you do the very best job that you can to figure out what the next appropriate step is for you to take in order to secure the safety of America and its allies against this jihadist threat. And then you also have the strength to take it. So it's the strength to pursue the knowledge necessary and the strength to take the steps that are appropriate in the context. And as you take the next appropriate step, you don't have to be certain about what it is, but you do your best and and you take that step, you'll get the knowledge that comes with that. You'll get more clarity and then you continue and you continue and you continue. And I found that in my own life, if I go back and look at it now, if I go back and I say, okay, was that what I was doing? Did I say, Oh, you know, I'm not clear. I'm only clear about the next step. No, I'm just, you know, going back and saying, yeah, that's really true. And what the knowledge and, and the, you know, for me observing the relationship between clarity and strength and how this happened step-by-step in, in my life, that's given me the resolve to you know, continue to pursue that approach in, in other things in my career and personal life and everything. You just say, okay, I don't know, you know, what the next step and the next step and the next step. I know that the first step is this. I'm going to just take that step and then keep my eyes open and see then what is the next best step and so on and so on. And that's what you can do. But clarity about it will give you strength. I think clarity, of, you know, recognizing the nature of this threat can give us the strength and resolve to do what is necessary against the enemy. The question is, what is it going to take before we get clarity? These attacks in London were particularly brutal, like the attacks in Paris in November of 2015. Really disgusting, brutal, horrible stuff. Even though if it's not on the scale of 9-11, the brutality, you know, it. it this should help people get very clear about the nature of this enemy. Uh, you've got pop stars out there risking their lives going to do a concert, which I think is wonderful. You know, there's a good defiant sense. But do they really have an understanding that there is a connection between this religion? Or are they willing to act accordingly? That we haven't seen yet. And like I said, you know, Teresa May out there, it's a perversion. That's a perversion. It's a perversion of, you know, her duty to protect the citizens of England. So um, let me go to Atlas Shrugged if I can. Let me go over first to the chat room, though. Rob says, birthdays are a good time to recognize what your most important values are and celebrate them. That requires clarity. I agree. Um Rob says, I read a review of Wonder Woman that praised it for having a complicated approach to finding out who the real villain was, and it called it an anti-war statement. I don't know. I mean, whatever is necessary to figure out who – now, we know who the real villain is, right, which is anybody who takes this ideology seriously and acts on it in a way to destroy us or our values. Right, and there's various ways of acting on it. I, I don't, I don't want to go too much into 
all of the just war theory stuff that I used to teach at the Air Force Academy. But, you know, who is it who is engaged in an attempt to destroy you? That's how I've seen it phrased in one of the articles that I really liked. You know, who are the people who are, who are actively engaged in an attempt to destroy you? It turns out that there are a whole lot of people, unfortunately. And again, we may have made it worse. Russia may have made it worse. Who are the people who are actively engaged in the attempt to destroy us? Many of them are motivated by this religion. And again, it's not a fringe perversion of it. It's a fairly mainstream, one of the mainstream interpretations of it. It happens to be evaded and rejected by many Muslims. Thank you to those of you who reject jihad. I would, I would prefer that many of you who reject jihad, if you're Muslims, be more outspoken about it, about rejecting it, and about rejecting these terrorists. That's what we need. Free Embry says, moderate Muslim women want to flaunt the oppression of the religion by wearing the hijab, for example, which has the effect of normalizing the oppression to many. Yeah, you know, the other horrific thing is the one that I talked about a few weeks ago where in, I think it was Michigan, no, Minnesota, Minnesota, that they could not even pass a piece of legislation banning female genital mutilation, that there's enough pushback in favor of Muslims, because it's like, oh, it's anti-Muslim, it's religious discrimination, I guess, if you do this. Ridiculous. This this is all out maiming and... um, you know, complete mutilation, complete barbarism, and we can't even pass a law against it. So that's sad. So clarity, clarity, as I said, just think about it for your personal life, because I don't want to go on about my life, but I've, I've found that clarity has helped me be strong to take steps that are necessary to take. And it doesn't have to be 100% clarity as to everything that's going to happen for the next 10 years or five years or anything. It's, clarity as to what the next best step is and, you know, connecting certain things in your life to the bringing of joy or the causing of pain and and acting accordingly. Just think about it. Again, you can call up if you want and tell me, no, you're all wrong. It's not clarity that there's something else really that gives you strength. But that had been the word that had occurred to me when I was, you know, going through various challenges in my life. So, Clarity in Atlas Shrugged. There are three different contexts, and I'm going to give you guys spoilers. It's my birthday, whatever, sorry. Um, There are three different contexts, three different characters who you can think of as having needed to reach a certain level of clarity, and then they were able to take the actions that they needed to take. And those are Francisco, Hank Reardon, and Dagny Taggart, the excerpt that I have for you is from Francisco because Francisco's the one who, you know, he, he had to go to the struggle to achieve the clarity. Of course, Galt, you know, Galt's the one who kind of, you know, the clarity came from him. He was the fountainhead of the clarity, right? But Francisco was one of the earliest to become clear as to what was required given the state of the world as it was. And for that reason, he was particularly eloquent at explaining the clarity that he achieved and the resolve that it gave him to Dagny. So here I am on page 765 of the copy of Atlas Shrugged I have, which is one of these 
larger editions, not the tiny little, what do they call those ones, trade paperbacks or whatever. This is the larger format edition. Um, you know, he's talking about to Dagny, right? When he, when he sees her in the valley, he talks about when he finally knew what he had to do, when he actually had to, in effect, leave the outside world and make himself into the sham worthless playboy who was going to destroy all the values that he was contributing to the destroyers. I mean, to the real destroyers, to the looters. Uh, and he was, there was a particular night that he was with Dagny that he made this realization that he had to join John Galt. So I'll read to read to you from that. He says, Dagny, it was the night when I knew for the first time that I loved you. It was then that I knew I had to go. It was when you entered my hotel room that night, when I saw what you looked like, what you were, what you meant to me, and what awaited you in the future. Had you been less, you might have stopped me for a while. But it was you, you who who were the final argument that made me leave you. I asked for your help that night against John Galt, but I knew that you were his best weapon against me, though neither you nor he could know it. You were everything that he was seeking, everything he told us to live for or die if necessary. I was ready for him when he called me suddenly to come to New York that spring. I had not heard from him for some time. He was fighting the same problem I was. He solved it. Do you remember? It was the time when you did not hear from me for three years, Dagny. When I took over my father's business, when I began to deal with the whole industrial system of the world... It was then that I began to see the nature of the evil I had suspected, but thought too monstrous to believe. I saw the tax-collecting vermin that had grown for centuries like mildew on Danconia copper, draining us by no right that anyone could name. I saw the government regulations passed to cripple me because I was successful and to help my competitors because they were loafing failures. I saw the labor unions who won every claim against me, by reason of my ability to make their livelihood possible. I saw that any man's desire for money he could not earn was regarded as a righteous wish, but if he earned it, it was damned as greed. I saw the politicians who winked at me, telling me not to worry because I could just work a little harder and outsmart them all. Past the profits of the moment, and I saw that the harder I worked, the more I tightened the noose around my throat. I saw that my energy was being poured down a sewer, that the parasites who fed on me were being fed upon in their turn, that they were caught in their own trap, and that there was no reason for it, no answer known to anyone, that the sewer pipes of the world draining its productive blood led into some dank fog nobody had dared to pierce, while people merely shrugged and said that life on earth could be nothing but evil. And then I saw that the whole industrial establishment of the world, with all of its magnificent machinery, its thousand-ton furnaces, its transatlantic cables, its mahogany offices, its stock exchanges, its blazing electric signs, its power, its wealth, all of it was run not by bankers and board of directors, but by any unshaved humanitarian in any basement beer joint, by any face pudgy with malice, who preached that virtue virtue must be penalized for being virtue, that the pursuit of ability, excuse me, that the purpose of ability is to serve incompetence, that man has no right to exist except for the sake of others. I knew it. I saw no way to fight it. John found the way. I'm going to stop there, um, end quote. 
but you see, you know, he says, I saw this, I saw that, right? It's, it's this clarity that he reached both by, you know, seeing what was going on in the world. But then he says his last argument was looking at Dagny, this woman whom he loved and seeing what that world was going to do to her. Right. Because sometimes it's not what the world's going to do to you, but it's what the world or anything else that's bad, whatever it's going to do to the person that you love. Right. That that'll be the, the, the clarity about the danger to the person that you love might be the thing that does it for you. And it seems that that's what Francisco is, is saying. You know, he, he saw the connection between the nature of this world, this completely incomprehensible, inexplicable parasitism, chains and chains of parasitism, everybody taking everybody else down with them and what it was going to do to the woman he loved. So, um, yeah, clarity. Clarity gave him strength to leave Dagny. His love for her is the thing that gave him strength to, to leave her. So that's my little dissertation as it was, as it were, I hope it, I hope I maybe convinced you that it is clarity that, that gives you strength. Obviously it's clarity about certain things. It can't just be any old type of clarity, but it's clarity as to what is required to gain and keep the values that make your life worth living. Um, I think I see that I've got Tom waiting on the line. He wants to talk about critical thinking skills. And given that this really, it is connected to an important issue today in our country, something, and actually, you know what, because of the attacks in London, I never actually saw what happened during the demonstrations in, I think they moved to Seattle. They were going to be in Portland, but they moved to Seattle. Remember the mayor of Portland was going to keep, the pro-Trump supporters. I actually don't know what happened there. I ended up dropping the ball on following up on that story. But this story about critical thinking skills is, I believe, connected to the problem we have in the United States today of the left wing in particular using violence to stop conservatives, libertarians, other people from speaking, from saying things that they disagree with. How is this all connected? We're going to talk about it now. And and particularly also because I got a a question about this. The headline is, it's a Wall Street Journal article, exclusive test data, many colleges fail to improve critical thinking skills. And if you have a Wall Street Journal subscription, you can read the whole thing. They actually have within the article a link to all of the data because it's non-public results. Uh, What it was is there's a test that is a measure of critical thinking skills possessed by the student who's taking the test. And the goal is to give a freshman this test, see how they, you know, how good they are at critical thinking when they're entering freshman, and then maybe give it to them when they're an exiting senior or certain number of years through whatever. But ideally, you want to know over the four years of their college or university career, have they improved in their critical thinking skills? The friend who wrote me asked, what are critical thinking skills? And so I, as a professor, I'm supposed to tell you what critical thinking skills are. I haven't done a whole pile of thought about articulating exactly what critical thinking skills means, but 
to my mind, what you want to do is first of all, and, and you know, I'm actually guilty of not engaging in critical thinking skills sometimes enough. And I have friends on Facebook who will point this out, um, you know, that I'm not careful enough in news articles that I share because it's old or the, you know, the reasoning behind the article itself is, is flawed or something like that. But what do you look at? Somebody is arguing for a certain position, right? They're saying that we should do X about Y. And behind that, there's some sort of argument that they give you. And what you want to do is you want to look at the logic of the argument. Are there, you know, premises that are solid that are leading to a conclusion that actually follows from it? Or is there some sort of logical fallacy? So you want to say, is there some sort of fallacy in the argument? First thing, of course, though, is, is there any argument provided at all? That's the first thing. And in my mind right now, I've got something nagging at me because I believe, I think it was Katy Perry. I'm not sure. I have, I have a positive view of Katy Perry recently, so I could be just projecting. But I think I think Katy Perry said something recently about not believing something without any evidence at all, as in rejecting the arbitrary. Pretty excited to hear. But it was somebody in pop culture recently. So, so the first thing is, do they have an argument at all, or are they just making some baseless assertion? You can be, you know, at the very first step, just very critical about dismissing any baseless assertion where a person doesn't provide an argument. Then when they provide an argument, you say, okay, are there any logical fallacies in that argument? Is somebody committing circular reasoning? Is somebody assuming the conclusion that they're trying to prove as part of their proof, as one of their premises? And there's various versions of, of circular reasoning that people employ. But there's all kinds of other fallacies, too. Uh, you know, Trump likes to appeal to the popularity of something. The fact that something is popular never makes it right. I've pointed out all sorts of logical fallacies in New York Times articles in Obama's speeches. There's a blog post on my blog. And I believe, I don't know if this is actually the title of it or not, but whenever it comes up in my, um, I've got one of those like thing that monitors my blog traffic. And there's a post that's Obama's speech, more altruism is the URL. And people from educational institutions all over the world, I kid, kid you not, come to this blog post because in the blog post, I point out how Obama committed various logical fallacies in speeches. So you want to look for these fallacies. Are, are they just appealing to emotions? Are they appealing to authorities of, of certain kinds? Are they appealing to the popularity of something? You know, all the best people love me, you know, says Donald Trump. Well, who cares, right? Um, so that's, that's one thing. And then even if, you know, there is evidence, there's argument put forth, it doesn't have any fallacies that you can identify within the argument. You also want to know the premises that make up the argument, whether each of those have been proven is true. One of the things that I struggle with and, but sometimes I don't struggle enough with it because obviously sometimes I've posted news articles that aren't that great, but most of the time I'm, I'm pretty careful about this. The news source that you're looking at when somebody's sharing something on Facebook, is it a source that you know of that you can rely upon? How can you figure out what a reliable news source is this day, these days? Um, you know, you, 
at the end, you have to kind of go back and, and the, at the very base of an argument is going to be somebody saying, hey, look out in the world, this thing happened or that thing has a certain nature or whatever it is. And eyewitness testimony, you're going to take it at face value unless you know the particular person to be unreliable or a liar or, or something else. But, you know, the logic of an argument is not affected, for instance, by the fact that it's put forth by even Elizabeth Warren. That was the first detestable person that came to mind. Elizabeth Warren could put forth a completely logically valid argument about something. I don't, you know, I wouldn't want to spend my time hearing it, but, you know, you can't dismiss that. What you might dismiss is you might say, well, Elizabeth Warren wouldn't be reliable in terms of telling you something based on her eyewitness testimony. Why? Because she lied about the fact that she has Indian background or whatever. So if she's a liar, what can you trust her about? Um, That kind of thing. So, uh, So the critical thinking would be looking at all of these things, looking at whether the premises are solid, what are the premises based on? Can you reduce the premises all the way down to pointing at the world and saying, okay, that sense experience is what it's all based upon. Um, and then building upon whatever premises, is there a logically constructed argument that somebody puts forth? Schools are not teaching this. What does this article say? This article says that in most schools, and especially a lot of the top educational institutions in the country, students are not learning critical thinking skills. They are not learning to question the arguments that are put forth for certain positions in front of them. And my question is based on this, and the article is only about that. The article is, you know, here's all these studies and it shows that there is just this dearth of imparting critical thinking skills to students in United States colleges and universities. There was one funny thing. It was, uh, there's a university in Kentucky and then also UT Austin that they are not preparing their students for thinking critically in life, you know, that they've failed all this. And they go to the administration of these universities and the administration says, oh, well, those tests are no good. We don't consult them anymore. As if, you know, of course, they should tell you why. What what is invalid or wrong about these tests? As far as I could tell from the description of the tests, they seem like they were valuable. But yeah, so universities aren't doing this. So if a university is not teaching you how to critically assess the arguments that are put forth before you, then aren't you going to feel like you're threatened? Anytime somebody puts in front of you something that you disagree with, particularly if it's something that you see as a threat to values of yours, right? So, you know, uh, Murray, Charles Murray comes to Middlebury, Vermont, and he says some things that seem like they're going to attack your friends of certain races and immigrants and whatever else. And you don't know how to evaluate his book. You don't know how to address it. You've never been taught how to do this. You feel baffled. All you feel like you can do at that point is use some sort of force to stop him from speaking. You don't know how to fight whatever it is that he's saying that you disagree with by means of argument, right? So that to me is, is the connection with this. If, if we 
aren't teaching critical thinking in our universities. And again, our universities are populated by all these leftists, right? The leftist professors. We talked about that last week with the Jordan Peterson and everything. Um, You know, leftism is the predominant ideology that apparently the students are absorbing without questioning. So if you dare, if you're in, you know, the substantial minority on these campuses that is active and wants to bring in a conservative speaker, you can know that your leftist fellow students are just going to feel threatened because they aren't intellectually prepared to confront these arguments that they disagree with, right? They, they, they don't feel competent to do it. Uh, and maybe they're going to lash out. They're more likely to lash out physically because they feel mentally they aren't equipped. They haven't been armed. So that's really my point about that. I'm going to see what Tom's point was here in a moment. Tom, that's you, right? Can you turn off the computer again? Hello? Tom? I've only got a couple minutes, so I hope you get me quick here. Hello? Hi. Yeah, so what was was your point on the story? Well, my point is, I disagree. The colleges and universities have not failed to teach critical thinking skills. If you'll go back to 1970 in the objectivist August through December, uh, Ayn Rand did an extensive uh, essay on uh, the conference, which predominantly dealt with what was being taught or not taught at colleges and universities. In the early 70s, yeah. Yes, in the early 70s. Okay, there are two books that have come out that are quite detailed as to exactly who, what, when, where, why, and how that uh, problem exists. One is called Crimes of the Educators, how utopians are using government schools to destroy Americans' children. And the other one, which okay, does okay. reference... Okay, so, wait, 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 wait. Before you go into too much, because I've only got a couple minutes left. So is your point that it's not that they're failing, it's that they're deliberately not teaching it. Is that your point? That's right. And these the okay. two books are documentation. Okay. The other book, uh, the best that refers to Ayn Rand, is Credential to Destroy, How and Why Education Became a Weapon by uh, Robin Eubanks, E-U-B-A-N-K-S. And she also refers to uh, the hatred of good for being good, a hatred of ability, competence, and intelligence in uh, uh, Ayn Rand's essay on envy. Yeah, and so I recommend I mean, really, both. So, 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 really, so really your quibble is with the fact that this article talks about it as a failure, that the article is on the assumption that the colleges and universities would actually want to teach critical thinking skills, and it's just the default, you know, an and, and inadvertent default. These things are documentations. Yeah. These right. things are documentations of exactly who, what, when, where, how, and why. This has been done. Uh, one of them goes back to 1908, and the other one's uh, 1898. And no, and I, and, I, and, I, and I, I, definitely, I definitely can't say that I'm surprised about that. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and have to let you go, Tom, but I thank you okay. uh, for, for, for calling in. Uh, I've only got a couple minutes left, and I've got still a bit of program notes that I want to get through. Of course, some of this I'm going to be talking about in weeks to come because it's just started. Like I said, I've gotten the wonderful birthday gift of the Supreme Court agreeing to hear 
the cell phone tracking case. So I will talk to you about that. I'm trying to figure out how I can partake in writing an amicus brief. I want to get before the court the argument about the third-party doctrine, even if they are going to think I'm crazy, that my argument is too radical, et cetera. I would like to do that. The other thing that I've got over my program notes, it's funny, at the bottom it says in progress. I think I promised you that I'm going to add one thing to the program notes, and I have forgotten what it is. So if anybody wants to remind me what I promised to add you in the program notes, I'll, I'll do that. I might add something later, too. I, I should put some music there. I didn't put any music. I put an article on Andrew Higgins, who I didn't know about before. You know, we had D-Day. Day before my birthday is always D-Day and the anniversary of D-Day. Andrew Higgins, who loved bourbon, cursed a lot, and built the boats that won World War II. You know, it's just an accident, probably. I don't know. You guys who are experts in psychology can tell me whether or not it's an accident that this guy who drank while working and only while working and drank a lot happened to be the guy that made a vast majority of the fleet that helped us to win World War II. You can read the article as a great Washington Post article. From It's linked to in the program notes. So kudos, not just, I mean, obviously it's the, the soldiers and their, and their bravery, but the tremendous entrepreneurship of someone like Higgins, who was able to make these boats that made the victory possible as well. That's an interesting angle on the, on the D-Day story that you might appreciate. So go check that out at don'tletitgo.com. Thanks everyone for being here and indulging me on my birthday show. I hope you got something out of my little dissertation of clarity and strength. Continue the discussion. Don'tletitgo.com. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, anything else. So take care. I'll talk to you next week. Again, Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 Pacific. Take care.